This is the second week of our series, Prophets of Joy. We're studying select prophecies about joy from Isaiah, the prophet of joy. And Isaiah unveils to us that joy has a prophetic nature, that joy itself is a gift from God to his people for the sake of the world. You see, joy is a feeling, but that feeling will be incomplete if that joy isn't rooted in God and expressed in the world. It'll truncate that joy. Isaiah says in chapter 12, verse 3, it's with joy that we're going to drink from these wells of salvation. That joy's wells are deep enough to satiate every person and every need in all of creation. And the premise of our series is that joy has an alluring nature. When we read about what Isaiah is talking about, when we reach out and taste it, we too can experience this joy and we too can become prophets of joy. Because we believe that God still gives the gift of prophecy to the church and that the gift of joy coupled with the gift of prophecy can make us into a powerful witness in a city that needs more than happiness, a city that desperately needs joy. Now, perhaps to some surprise, last week, uh, we didn't start with the obvious spiritual practices of joy. We didn't talk about how we're called to rejoice or give thanks or sing. But rather, we started with one discipline, lament. And I encourage you to consider bringing lament into your life because lament toils the ground for joy. And healthy lament leads to joyful repentance. We have to lament the horrific uh, suffering we see throughout the world and all of its injustices. We have to lament the disorder in our own souls and the heartbreak that this causes God because we have settled for a good life that is not truly good. But in doing so, we turn toward the God who offers himself to us over and over again, who offers us joy, who offers us a truly good life. Today, we're going to consider how joy always comes to us as news. Joy always comes to us as news. On February 11th, 1990, Nelson Mandela was set free. He was in prison for 27 years for standing up against a government that was committing egregious human rights violations and abuses against black South Africans. A newspaper headline declared on that day that Mandela goes Free. And a journalist who's reflected on this event, Greg Meyer, describes the response as an explosion of joy. An explosion of joy. Over 100,000 black South Africans gathered to celebrate his release, to celebrate a leader of their movement who they hoped would bring liberation. And Mandela knew the moment at hand, and in his speech he said, Comrades and fellow South Africans, I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant of you, the people. And this is precisely what he proved to be, a servant of both black and white South Africans, a servant who led the way forward to abolish apartheid. Joy comes to us as news which can ignite us. It can take a hold of us and impart joy at the same time. We know this from definitive cultural moments, and we know it from defining moments in our own lives. We see this in Nelson Mandela's release, and we see this in our passage today, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 through 13. Isaiah writes, How beautiful 
Upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. We see that this good news of happiness makes people's feet beautiful, that they travel far and wide to publish this news. Isaiah emphasizes that twice. This isn't news that's meant to be contained, but it's meant to be shared. It's meant to impart joy. As Isaiah goes on to say, the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. He continues in verse 9. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The headline reads, see the salvation of our God. And a celebration erupts from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. People begin singing for joy. And then Isaiah concludes in verse 13, which is a transitional verse into a song. He says, behold, my servant, he shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And he shall be exalted. Just as South Africans celebrated the news about Mandela's release, Isaiah tells us that this joyful news of God's salvation is about a single person too. God says, behold, here is your cause for celebration. Here is your cause for rejoicing, my servant. And the news about him releases an explosion of joy. So we have just one question that I want to explore this morning. Why is the news about this servant decisively good and joyful? Why is the news about this servant decisively good and joyful? If you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, so it'd be helpful to have that on hand. If you don't have one, Everything's on the screen. And if you don't own one, grab one of our church Bibles and take it home. It's yours. Isaiah chapter 52, look at verse 13 one more time. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. If God is going to lift someone up, if the creator of the universe is going to exalt someone, something really good must be happening here. Isaiah prophesies several times about a servant in his, his, his book, uh, and scholars call the, this the servant songs of Isaiah, a collection of songs that have a lyrical nature in the prophecies. And this makes sense because uh, as you hear about them, the response always is singing, it's rejoicing. And when Isaiah first speaks of this servant in his book, it's a title that was given to the whole nation of Israel. Israel was created and called by God to be his servant to be a source of light and a reflection of God's salvation into all the world, that the nations who were blind would look to Israel and see the glorious light of God's salvation. But sadly, Israel, as we saw last week, turned away from God. They extinguished the light. They too became blind and now stand in need of someone to liberate them, stand in need of someone else to shine the light of God's salvation to them. And now we see God's solution here in Isaiah. Behold, my servant. 
Since the nation of Israel has gone astray, since the nation of Israel has fallen short of being the servant of God, God will raise up one individual within the nation to fulfill their purpose. This person will be entirely faithful to God. He alone will bring Israel back to God and bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. This sounds like good news. This is, verse 13 is the first line of a song, but then the rest of the song takes a dark turn. We don't read what we would expect. Look at verse 14. We read about the servant's horrific suffering. Rather than being lifted up and exalted, the servant's face will be brutally smashed and beaten almost to the point of not being recognizable. The modern artist Antonio Sara has a piece in the Gutenberg called Crucifixion, and he depicts this violent disfiguration. You can see in it that the brush strokes are violent, they're disordered, there's some semblance of human form, but only barely, you can barely tell what's human and what's the cross. It's a powerful and vivid portrayal of what we're reading here in Isaiah. And the song, it continues on into chapter 53. We read in verses 1 through 4 that everyone who looks upon him will be appalled or shocked because of the extent of his suffering. He wasn't exalted. Instead, he was brought low. His own people didn't find him impressive. In fact, they rejected him and despised him. And so he became full of grief and sorrow. The next five verses sing of how the servant was pierced crushed, chastised, oppressed, and afflicted. These are the verbs of the song. He was cut off from the land of the living. He died. And Isaiah sings boldly that all of this took place to deal with our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins. Isaiah says he died as a sin offering for our guilt, not his own. So once more, I have to ask, why is this news about this servant decisively good and joyful? How can we sing along to a song with a melody like this? It's so dark. And we know that this prophecy was about Christ. We know this prophecy was about how Jesus would be scourged and tortured and cru crucified, that he would be marred beyond recognition. And Isaiah is meaning to cause us some existential shock. You see, we can't look upon this servant and feel no offense. We're modern Vancouver, Vancouverites. I mean, the violence alone offends us. You know, the horrific suffering, the, the disfiguring of a person, that offends us. But even more so, we're offended that we're being told this was a sin offering for our own sins. You see, it's easy to think, uh, my sin has never disfigured someone to this extent. Or, my sin has never disfigured my own soul so as to need someone to suffer like this. You know, others may have done horrific things in the world, but not me. I didn't have the nails in my hands for the cross. I didn't hold the hammer. But perhaps, just maybe, what's more offensive is how we can stand above the cross on some sort of moral high horse and never find our place at the foot of the cross. We may not think there's anything within ourselves to warrant this kind of death for our sins, but our eyes deceive us. Our eyes deceive us. Psychologists and scientists have been studying the power of eye contact, and I just I find their experiments fascinating, especially the ones 
around extreme eye contact, which is a new uh, sport on ESPN. Uh, for example, if you and someone else uh, stare into each other's eyes in a dimly lit room for 10 minutes, not only will you fall in love, which wasn't part of the experiment, but you will start to experience odd sensations. Dissociation will take place. You'll lose sense of your normal reality. In 2015, for example, a psychologist named Giovanni Caputo, you guessed it, Italian, uh, tested these effects. And he found that participants during this experience felt time slow down and that sounds changed. 90% of participants, 90% said they'd seen, they had seen deformed facial features in the person they were looking at. 75% said they saw a monster, 50% saw aspects of their own face in the partner's face, and 15% said they'd seen a relative's face, all from staring in another's eyes and taking peyote beforehand. <laughs> but what they're discovering is that staring into another's eyes under the right lighting for the right amount of time can cause dissociation. It can become an illusion. And so does staring into culture for too long. But it has the opposite effect. Rather than seeing the deformity of our own souls, the monstrous offense that it is to reject God's servant, we believe the illusions. We begin to think, no, humanity is far too domesticated to be this awful. We're not this bad. We're far more kind, more generous, and fundamentally more capable of good than this. But this perspective, which I think is in all of our eyes, is a sign that we've been staring at culture for far too long. But if we stare into the eyes of Christ, if we stare into the eyes of the suffering servant, we discover that his disfigurement is actually a reflection. He's reflecting back to us the horrible nature of our sin, and he's reflecting back to us and making explicit the deformity of our own souls. But perhaps, just maybe, there's something more offensive still. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, many of us can look upon the cross and feel nothing at all. What has become of our souls that we can feel no disorientation over the depths of our sin which necessitated the suffering of Christ? It's difficult for us to do, isn't it? But if we're going to sing this song of Isaiah, we have to find ourselves in it. Because Isaiah, he doesn't talk about your sin or my sin. He talks about our sin. And in the song, there's two responses. There's the response of those who reject the servant outright and the response of those who come to see that the servant did this for our sins. But everybody starts in the first category. The question is, Will we pick up the melody of the song? Will we too begin to sing its good news? In Dostoevsky's masterpiece, uh, Brothers Karamazov, anyone? Anyone made it through? Wow, more than the first service, one person in the first service. But you know there's a wise priest named Zosima. Yeah. Brilliant. And he says in one, in one of his speeches, there's only one way to salvation. That's to make yourself responsible for all men's sins. 
As soon as you make yourself responsible in all sincerity for everything and for everyone, you will see at once that this is really so, that you are in fact to blame for everyone and for all things. God is not so much concerned about how much you think you've contributed to the collective bucket of humanity's sin, but whether you've contributed at all. But in our hyper-individualistic lenses in which we see the world, a sentence like this that we are in fact to blame for everyone and for all things, it almost makes no sense to us. But that just shows the extent that sin has distorted our sight. That we look to our brothers and sisters in humanity and say, well, that's just their problem. It's the primordial sin of Cain all over again. Who is, am I my brother's keeper? This doesn't make it any less true. The suffering of Christ, if we need to say it individualistically, shows us how all of us have treated God. We've not honored or revered or admired God. We've not praised or sought or esteemed God as we should. We've not treasured nor savored God. We have not trusted or obeyed or respected or feared God as we ought. We've not cherished or prized or loved God with our whole hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Or as Isaiah puts it in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Friends, this is why it's crucial that we recover the practice of lament. We must lament how humanity, which includes us, which includes you, includes me, we must lament how we've abused God and one another. We must lament that we see our own reflection in Christ's deformed body on the cross. But when we do, we'll also start to find the harmonies of the joy in this song. Isaiah sings in verse 6, He was crushed and pierced for our transgressions and for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. And he sings louder in verse 11, The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says, this suffering servant makes us right with God. Jesus has ignited an explosion of joy. But it starts as a spark. It starts small in the remote corner of the earth for an almost unnoticeable people, Israel. And they'd been unfaithful and estranged from God, but God remained faithful. The nation was full of sins and impurities, doing whatever was right in their own sight, but God kept his promises, and he sent a servant to forgive and redeem them out of their sins. Isaiah says in chapter 62, because of this, Israel will be a crown of beauty in the hands of the Lord. God will delight in her once again. What starts as a spark becomes a flare. What has been ignited bursts through the, land, the people and renews their land. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 52, verse 9, look, the waste places of Jerusalem will break forth in singing. Ruined cities will be repaired. Cities will be transformed and changed. Land, buildings, streets, homes that were dead and wasted can begin to burst forth with new life. 
Jesus has ignited a growing light that cannot be ignored. It explodes onto the stage of the world because God's salvation is uncontainable. This ever-increasing joy extends beyond Israel and into all of the nations. Look at verse 10. The eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You see, the salvation that Jesus accomplished was not just for Israel, for the sake of the world. That's what Isaiah means in verse 15, that Jesus will sprinkle many nations. The blood that he shed doesn't redeem one people, but all people. And this explosion of joy keeps growing and expanding and spreading still. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. Peace will flow like a river throughout all of creation. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 11 that the wolf and the lamb will live together. He says that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and that their spears will become pruning hooks. There will be no more war. Creation itself will begin to rejoice. Mountains and hills will burst into songs. The trees of the fields will clap their hands when the new heavens and earth are made complete and the old passes away. Then, and then only, will the earth be covered in the glory of God, covered in the beauty of God. This explosion of joy will move through every atom and molecule and quark and string in creation. It will reverberate through the halls of eternity. It will one day make everything new. And on that day, when salvation has renewed the entire universe, righteousness and justice, Isaiah says, will overflow in the streets. Sickness and disease will be found nowhere. He prophesies in chapter 26 that your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwelt in dust, awake and sing for joy. Because death will be no more. This small spark set off by Christ has become a cosmic, universal explosion of joy. And the best news is that this joy will make its home in our souls. Isaiah says in uh, chapter 61 that we'll have everlasting joy. And in chapter 35, that everlasting joy will crown our heads. People, this is going to be a long sermon if you make me say all of my own amens. Amen? <laughs> but it starts as a spark. It starts as a spark. A spark created by iron hitting iron, hammer meeting nail of the cross. It starts as a spark which causes the wounds of Christ for our healing. A spark that collides with the death that resides in our bodies. A flickering of light which chases out the darkness in our souls. An explosion which confronts our sin. Sin. That great disruptor of the world. Sin, which gave birth to lies and hatred and murder. Sin, which has broken hearts, savaged marriages, and ended friendships. Sin, which finds its strength in division, fear, and anger. Sin, which has led to war after war and countless losses. Sin, which has given birth to its own children, injustice, suffering, and affliction. Sin, that which has traced a crack in everything good and beautiful. Sin, which has found pleasure in tempting us with empty promises that can never deliver. Sin, which delights in creating a chasm between us and God. Sin, which has enslaved us to its power, allures, and whispers. 
Sin, which has proudly held the penalty of death over our heads. Sin, that great disruptor of the world, the single-handed greatest disruptor of joy. Sin has been eclipsed by an explosion of joy. And ever-increasing mercy of healing which flows from Christ's wounds all started by a spark that through his wounds we can be healed and have peace with God. An explosion that brings a grace that rattles our bones, something we could never earn or warrant, but a grace that forgives all sin, that empties sin of its power, that undermines all of our guilt and guts our shame. And brings us into the blessed reality that God remembers our sin no more. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Not our sin and not even death. Of course this salvation can't be contained. Of course this salvation has made people's feet beautiful as they go out into all the nations and proclaim this good news. It's better than any wedding, any New Year's, any graduation, any celebration we've ever known. Because as Isaiah has shown us in chapter 52, this is news that imparts joy. People start singing. Even creation starts singing. Desolate cities start singing because the salvation of God has come and it is changing everything. But it starts as a spark with Christ dying for our sins. And it comes to us as news. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There is no such thing as an ordinary moment because of that. Joy comes to us as news. Because Jesus died for our sins, we can be healed and have peace with God. Joy comes to us as news that salvation does not just redeem people, but the entire created order. That all of this stuff that we love and wonder how it fits into God's plan, he is interested in and is redeeming and renewing it. This is the power of the gospel. J.R.R. Tolkien, great poet and author. Uh, he has a little book called The Lord of the Rings. Uh, assuming someone's heard of it. Uh, he once wrote, it is the mark of a good story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, when the turn comes, it can give a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart near to tears. In the turn, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story and lets a gleam come. We know that power in the best stories. And we are touching on that power in the good news of the gospel. Because it comes to us in the container of a story, but it's also news. We're getting a glimpse, breaking through our web of plausibility. We're beginning to see true joy seeping through the cracks within this creation. And the news it's better still. Paul picks up on this quote from Isaiah. He says, how beautiful are the feet that bring this good news. But he says that after what he says in Romans 10, verse 9 through 15. Here's the beauty of that news to Paul. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news of happiness and of joy. Faith simply responds to what has already been done for us. Faith opens us up to what Jesus has already accomplished for us. There's nothing else required of us but to believe. And free, unbridled joy then ignites in our souls. It's okay if that joy in your soul starts as a small spark. Because I get that there can be a lot of pressure when we talk about joy. But I'm not talking about something I want us to manufacture as a community. I'm talking about the promise that Christ gives us, that there will be an explosion of joy that will reorder the entire universe and that through his spirit we can begin to have tastes of that joy in the here and now. And as I said last week, there are core practices that can open us up to this joy of salvation. The first core practice is repentance. The continual renewing and realigning of our mind to the reality of this news. That we repent not just of our personal sins, but also of how we see the world. That we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and see the world in light of this good news of happiness. But belief is the water that helps the seeds of joy grow. Choosing this news over the news of culture. You see, when repentance is coupled with belief, the core disciplines of the gospel, Jesus says, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. This is how you receive a kingdom of endless, everlasting joy. You only need to repent and believe. If joy is lacking in your life, or if you've never had it, return, Isaiah says, to this headline news. See the salvation of our God. See not just how it benefits you, but see its breadth, its majesty, how it's renewing all of the known universe. Contemplate its reality, because there's always more depth to be explored, more height to be explored. It's always bigger than we can fathom or ever understand. There is always more beauty to be discovered in the salvation that started with the spark of Christ being the suffering servant. The good news of salvation is that joy has arrived, that joy will come, and that everlasting joy can be yours. Here's the last question. What news will your feet take with you this morning?